times where you wish you knew more about the Bible and there's parts of the Bible that you feel like you're not competent with or you don't really understand what's going on. Like, for instance, the minor prophets, right? Not a lot of us spend a lot of time in the minor prophets. Not a lot of us read parts of the minor prophets and go, wow, that is so awesome. We go, what's going on? I don't understand, all right? So I want to tell you something. From 9 to 10 on Sunday mornings, you have a great opportunity to expand your biblical knowledge, to learn more about the, the minor prophets and how they can impact your life. I, I hardly recommend that. Also, would encourage you to pick up the dishes in the back. However, if you don't, I can tell you what does happen with them. My wife's birthday is coming up, and I give her great birthdays sometimes, just lots of dishes that she loves. Um, and also, the, uh, in the back, those envelopes with your giving records, because if you don't pick them up, I pick them up and claim them on my taxes. So I want to encourage you... <laughs> Just so we can be honest here, I encourage you to do that. Also, on your way out, I encourage you to notice that we have hung new artwork up in, in the foyer. Um, you know, I've thought about this for a long time. We are, we are in Port Warwick, which is an arts community, and we want to be a part of that community, and we, we want to be a part of what's going on in that community, and so we, we, are, we are doing that. If you are uh, an artist and you think, well, I'd like to, well, let me know. We're going to be rotating every few months, and uh, so we would love, love to be involved in people's lives with those types of things. Okay, we are in 1 John chapter 3. We're in a series on 1 John as we're going through this and we're learning, and, 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 and John has, has taught us some in, uh, incredible stuff already to this point, stuff that is life-changing. He's taught us things about ourselves. He's taught us things about God. I mean, he started off, God is light. And, 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 and in that grammar of that sentence is, is, this, is this powerful truth. It's not that God is the light or God is like light. God is light. Full stop, right there. He, it's, it's his character. It's his core. It's who he is. He's going to say this again. He's going to say God is love. That's coming up. God is love. Full stop, character, core. Now, we can say that God is, is, is a righteous God, and whenever that's used, that righteousness is used, that's describing something about him. Whenever it's, other, other words are used for God, it's describing something about him. But these words are key because these are words that say this is, this is him. We're not describing something about him. We're saying this is who he is at his core. So suddenly, God being light becomes a much more powerful thought, much more important thought, and then he says walk in it. Walk in the light. Walk in God's light because that light shows sin in our lives. Okay, I'm, I'm going to rehash the whole first. No, I'll stop there. Okay, so today, verses 4 through 10, and I'm going to read them to you, beginning with verse 4 on your sheet there. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. All right, so we started off with 1 John 3, this chapter, 3, verses 1 through 3. 
And, and, and those, are, those are key. So I'm going to read those to you also. And I'm sorry to just, I'm hitting you with so much scripture. Um, See what the great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now we talked about that. And we talked about what that meant, meant in the context of this letter. And this is important. He's saying, look, look how much God loves us. That's the first and foremost thing. Understand how much God loves you. You are his treasure. He is crazy about you. All right? He loves you. You know, when my kids were little, um, sometimes I would tell them things. I'd tell them how much I love them. You know, sometimes with my girls, I'd say, say to get one of my girls, I'd say, you know, I just want you to know how much I love you. You are my favorite. Don't tell anyone. And they'd be like, (laughs) they'd get so excited, right? I'm dad's favorite. like that. And then I get the other one and I say, you're my favorite. Don't tell anyone. And I get the third one. Don't tell anyone that you're my favorite. And then one day they all compared notes and they're like, wait. Uh, So parenting 101, right? That's not a good plan, but uh, it's the plan I chose. So what, what is God saying? He's saying you're my favorite. And I'm his favorite. I don't know how this works. I don't know how, but he says that. You're, you, 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 you're his favorite, and I'm his favorite. He loves us so much, because if it was just me, he would have died for me. And so he loves you. So John is trying to really gra- get them to grab, because see the great love the Father has lavished on us, and that word great is that word for something that's out of this world. It's not normal love. It's an out-of-the-world love. It's an otherworldly love, because it is. He says, this is that great love that he has for us. He's lavished on us that we should be called children of God. So so John's laying a foundation. You're loved. You're a child of the king. And then in verse 2, he brings out this idea of purpose and destiny of who we are and what we will be. You know, and then then he says... uh, he says in, oh, I, I should have kept on going. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what, and what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, he sh- we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And so he's saying, okay, great love for me. Now he's saying you have a purpose, you have a destiny. This is what's, this is what's planned for. I have a plan for your life. And then that, that third verse, he says, so this causes purification. What causes purification? How hard I work? Did I grit my teeth? He says, no, what causes purification is you focus on these two things. How much I love you. You focus on, on, on this plan I have for your life, this destiny I have for your life, that I'm intimately involved with every aspect of your life, and that will cause it. It will happen. It will be work, and it will be hard at times, but that focusing is the key. And so John has laid this out, and now he's going to build on it. And, and again, some of this, we have to get a little bit historical here. I want you to remember the context of this letter. He's dealing with a heresy that's called Gnosticism that's causing trouble there with the Christians that he's writing to, and he loves these Christians dearly. It's tearing him up to see this. And Gnosticism, and I'm just, just super, super uh, uh, com, you know, compacting this, it's, it's separated body and spirit. They deny the deity of, a, of Christ in, in the sense that they said Jesus was just some man, and then God came on him for a while, and then God left him before he was, before he was crucified because God can't die. That's ridiculous, right? And so they had this separation that they began to teach. And it had different forms because it was, it was all over the place. But they, they denied the deity of Christ. 
They said the flesh is evil and the spirit is good, and they came up with all kinds of things on that. But it brings up something I just want to touch on real quick, and that is we see sometimes in Scripture and we see it in our world when heresy develops, what, what Scripture, what uh, uh, biblically we would call heresy, and that is something, heresy is something that denies a central core, a central doctrine of the gospel. And that's what these people were doing. They were denying a central doctrine of the gospel, and this is what John is fighting. All right? And how does this happen? And oftentimes we see this can happen easily when, 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 when it, the Christianity goes into place. It happens in other groups too, different forms of it. But when Christianity goes into a place and it explodes, there's always that danger. Why? Because it explodes quickly and you have people who in some ways they are, uh, they're young in their faith and maybe untaught and they suddenly are, are thrust into positions of, of great authority. And so what happens is they come up with ideas sometimes that sound very reasonable, but they don't see where these ideas lead, and they don't see the dangers of where they lead. And I don't say this. I really want you to understand. I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back or anything like that, but I've had years of teaching by godly people to help me see those things. But even then, I, am, I have no confidence in myself in that way. I'm always learning. I'm always reading. I'm always... when I. When I, when I study part of with this passage, this passage is actually a week late. I was supposed to do it last week, and I, and I gave it an extra week. Why? Because I wanted to check things. I wanted to make sure that if I teach something, that as to the best of my ability, it is correct, and it is biblical, and it honors and glorifies God. I take that incredibly seriously. I take it incredibly seriously that I stand here and teach, and you come, you come to listen and I know that it is God working through me, but I also know that I have a responsibility as a person who handles in a position of authority the Word of God. And I take that so seriously because I've had friends who have been destroyed by false teachers. I've seen it. I've seen it destroy families. I've seen it destroy churches. I've seen how it works. So in a passage like this that is a very pivotal passage and is an easy passage to, to, uh, to misinterpret, I've taken extra time to do extra reading, to consult with other people, to make sure that what I come to you with is, as far as I can tell, is the absolute truth of the Word of God. I want to teach it as it is intended. I take that seriously. Okay, I, I've said that a lot. Okay, so he says... Oh, this great love, this great plan, this purification that happens. It purifies us from sin. And now there's an obvious question that comes from that. What is sin? What is sin? Okay, John, you're saying that we're supposed to be purified from sin. What is sin? And John takes a moment. And so I headed up one of my points for that. What is sin? And in verse 4, he says it. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. All right, so he, he, he describes sin to them now, and he uses some words, the, the, the normal word we would use for sin, the Greek word hamartia, he, that's that word for sin. It's a breaking of the law. It's a disobedience to the commands of God. But then he says something extra. You notice he says in the second part, in fact, sin is lawlessness. Now he's bringing something else in. Lawlessness is the word that means living like there's no law at all. Why? Because living like there's no law at all means there's no lawgiver. 
And then I determine what the laws to be lived by are because I'm greater than God. And it's very interesting. That word for lawlessness is a word also. It has, it has this, this connotation, this meaning of rebellion. Rebellion against God. And this connects Satan's rebellion against God to these people at this time that John is writing and to us. And so you can see how serious this is to John. Because what is this saying? This is saying, I'm the center, not God. My will is paramount, not God's. My desires are foremost, not God's. And that's the rebellion of Satan. And so John has really now deepened this to make sure they get the idea of what sin is. He's deepened this not only to disobedience to God's laws. He's saying, this is a form of rebellion. This is a form of shaking my fist at God and saying, I know better than you. About four years after I became a Christian, I, I went through a, a very depressing time, uh, a difficult time. And um, one day, I shook my fist and said, no more, God. I will follow you no more. I remember being in my room, and I just yelled, I quit. I, I tendered my resignation to God. The good thing is, uh, God loves us. I know a couple times I tendered my resignation as a son to my parents, and they never really accepted it. And, uh, and, and neither did God. And for three months, I ran from him as hard as I could. But about a month and a half in, I had this feeling that God was running after me, that he would not let me go, that he loved me too much. And I felt like he just... He ran to me. He ran me over. He wrecked me with his love. And I finally, after three months, said, I, I, okay, okay, I can't, I can't, I'm tired. I can't run anymore. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I did not want to rebel anymore. Because the scripture tells us God's a jealous God. He doesn't want to share us with Satan and with rebellion and with sin. He's jealous for us. He loves like a hurricane, and I'm just a tree, right? He's jealous for me. And so we see here John is developing this idea of what sin is. He's going to go into it more in, in the rest of this book. But it is a breaking of the law. It is an act of rebellion against God and his will for us. And our problem is we tend to downplay sin, right? We're not really good judges of ourselves. Our heart and our mind have a great capacity to minimize, have a great capacity to fool us, to convince us that we're not as bad as we think we are. You know, and this is, this is biblical, but this, this is something that's no, social scientists know this. There's all kinds of studies I was reading in uh, Scientific, Scientific American, that's what it was, um, based on a number of studies, they were coming out with these things about how people think they're better than they really are. Just one or two of them. Here, one said 93% of people think they're better than most drivers. Okay, you realize that's impossible, right? I can't be better than most, all 93% of us, better than most drivers because we are most drivers. But stop and think about that. Don't you really think that's true? You're better than most drivers, don't you? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. 
Don't you lie to me. This is church. <laughs> right? Right? Okay, this is for my CNU friends. 94% of college professors think they're better than most of their peers at teaching. We have a couple of college professors in, in our, but the ones we have are, this is true. They're better. This, this is be, they're better. I've checked. Right? And it goes on and on and on, all walks of life, all different types of, of skills and expertise and, and all types of jobs. Most people think they're better than most people. One time they did a, a, a survey, I saw this a long time ago, and, and it was like, who do you think the most godly people in the world are? And, and, and it was like, you know, 85% of the people thought that Billy Graham was one of the most godly people in the world. And I thought, who's the 15% that's going, Billy Graham? No, he's a loser. You know, 80, it was, and it was right around the same amount, Mother Teresa. Who thinks they're better than Mother, Mother Teresa? Really? And then it asks them, where do you think you are? And almost everyone, but I'm in the 90 percentile. Really? You're better than Billy Graham and Mother Tree. You just, you just, that's crazy. But that's how we are. Why? Because our heart and our mind have this incredible capacity to fool us, to fool ourselves, to deceive ourselves. So that what we need is we need the truth, right? We need the truth. But the truth has to come from outside of me because I can manipulate and massage the truth to say almost anything right? I mean, there's people, that's their livelihood. They're called spin doctors. And after every, every political debate, you go to a room where there's all these spin doctors and they say, well, your candidate said this. Yeah, but you got to say what he said was really, he was referencing back to something else. And so what it really means is he loves children. You know, it doesn't sound like, what it, they, 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 they must, why? Because we're so good at that. We're so good at that. The Bible calls us to the truth that we are sinners, that we are helpless and hopeless. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that? We say this, oh yeah, you know, I used to get this all the time working with, I, I know, but I'm not as bad as him because he, whew, oh, that's a bad one over there. I know I'm better than that. That's what we do. We minimize, we downplay our sin so that I say, well, in terms of sinners, I'm in the 90th percentile. I'm better than most, right? But what does scripture say? Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone each one. Each one has turned their own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So John is addressing this, what is sin issue? The second thing he wants to say is, what is the remedy? And this is in verse 5 and also the second half of verse 8 where it says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The purpose of the Son of God coming to earth as a human being is to deal with sin. And he appeared, it says, but you know that he appeared. He appeared he, to, to be made visible. It's a word that means to be able to touch it has become physical. I can touch it. Jesus could be touched. He could be seen. He could be heard. He could be smelled. All that stuff. He became visible. So this contradicts some of the teachings of the Gnostics. They say that God came upon this man, Jesus. He was just a normal man. Then God came upon him and then left him. And, and, and 
what is John doing? He's contradicting that. He's saying, no, his purpose was to deal with this. That's from the moment he was born, this was ordained. And so he says, he takes away our sins. That word, take away, is the idea of to pick something up and to carry it under great strain. He bore our burden on the cross. And so, you know, when you think about this, Scripture tells us to bear one another's burdens as part of the body of Christ. I mean, some of, 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 of the beautiful thing of what, what is going on in different aspects of this church and different ministries of this church and small groups and things like that is people's burdens are being carried by friends, by, by, by brothers and sisters in Christ. We're taking one another's burdens on. And I want to tell you, the key is that you have to know what someone else's burden is, and that requires relationship. That's why these things are so important, to have a relationship, to have community, so you know the burdens so that you can help bear them with others. But when you do that, this is the coolest thing, when you bear someone else's burdens, when you help someone else through difficult times, when you lift them up in prayer, when you help them you know, with various things, whatever it may be, what are you doing? You're imitating Christ. He bore our burdens. So bear one another's burdens. We do that as we honor and glorify him in the way we live our lives. So he came, verse 8b, he came to destroy the work of the devil. Scripture teaches that Satan has been involved in this world. And we as people, as people who are sinners, we have no hope, no future. And this is what Satan wants, no reason for living, except whatever we can think up on our own. And so he came to fight that, to win the battle. So our sins are gone. And this, this brings up something else. Where does he carry them to? He, ser- he says he carried our sins. Where does he carry them to? Where does he bear this burden to? Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Now that phrase, east from the west, is this phrase of that it's, it's, gone, out of, it's, it's gone out of existence in a sense. It's as far away as, could, as possibly could be. In the New Testament, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. As a child of God, if you sin and you come to God and confess your sin, God puts it in a place where it will never be brought up again. I always think of, as a little kid, telling my dad I was sorry about something. And he looked at me and said, this is the sixth time you've done it. When are you going to get serious about it? And I can remember, I think I was eight years old. I can remember suddenly having this thought, he's keeping track. He's like Santa Claus. He's, he's, he's got his list, who's naughty and nice, and he's keeping, he's keeping all, the, all this stuff. Yes, I, I did believe in Santa Claus. And uh, he's keeping track. I didn't think my dad kept track. It was a, it, for an eight-year-old, that was like an existential crisis. It was a horrifying thought that my dad was keeping track of all the bad things I was doing. God does not do that. God does not keep track. He says he places it where it will not be remembered. It will never be brought up again. It will never come into his thoughts again. It is gone. 
so that when I come to him again and I say, God, I'm such a jerk. I'm so sorry. I did it again. This is like the third time. And he's like, first time for me. This is the first time for me. I don't remember what you're talking about. It's not being brought up again. This is, that's where he bore the burden of our sins. He took them to a place where they would never be remembered. That is revolutionary. That is freeing. We talk about for freedom you have been set free, that the truth sets you free, that Jesus Christ came to set free the prisoners. This is freedom right here. I do not live under the burden and the shame of all those things I've done in the past. You know, talking about when I spent that that three months of absolute hell running from God. I'm ashamed of what I did. And then I remember, he died for that shame. I don't have to be ashamed anymore. That's freeing. So, what is sin? He gives it to us. What is the remedy for sin? Absolutely, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he says he's going to address sin in the Christian this is one of the, probably a very difficult passage I, I know for a lot of people. So let's just look at this. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. And so we have some verses here that, that are, are seeming to say something. And I want you to just to remember, first of all, what John is dealing with. He's saying, I don't want you to be led astray. Before we go and address this, I just, the, 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 the Gnostics believe that the body and the soul are separate. Their peculiar ideas on Jesus led this to this. Therefore, the soul and the spirit can be one with God, and the body is this evil thing that you have to live with for now. Do you see how heresy starts? Think about this. The soul, the spirit can be one with God, and the body is this evil thing which you have to live with for now. And your first thought is, yeah, okay. Okay, this is how heresy starts. It takes truth, and then you build on it. It takes something we could agree on. I have the Spirit indwelling me. I have the righteousness of Christ, and yet I can still sin. I see what you're saying. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. Paul's saying, ah, I'm struggling with this. And so then they're, but now they draw conclusions, the body is of no significance. It's just this evil thing. We'll get rid of it. We'll shed it. So it's of no consequence. And it is evil, so it will do evil things. Just don't worry about it. This is what the Gnostics are teaching. All right, let me just make sure you're with me on that. Don't go back and say, Pastor Bob said, okay, don't want that. All right? So they say, since the body is evil, it does evil things. Don't worry about it. Your spirit is what's pure. Just give up on the body. So it became a convenient way not to do anything that was difficult. And John keeps coming back to this idea of love. Why? Because they weren't being loving. Why? Because loving, being loving towards people can be hard. It can be hard to be loving towards people. Even people you care about, it can be hard to be loving towards them. 
And so, that's what they were thinking, and that's what he's combating here. That's what he's fighting so much here. Now, does that kind of thinking manifest itself now? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. When I worked with young people, a lot of times, I would meet people that say, oh, I was, I was saved at the age of seven. I walked down this aisle, or I was saved in a Sunday school class. And their life shows no signs of being serious about living for Jesus Christ. Now, I can't, I can't decide where they stand before Christ. That's only something God can do. But he says for us to use discernment. And so if I'm dealing with people and I'm trying to care for their souls, this concerns me when someone says, oh, I was saved at seven. I don't really remember it, but my parents told me I walked down the aisle and I prayed a prayer, so I'm good. I'm good. Now, what is going on there? You see what's happening? The spirit and the body, I live this way, but I'm good because of what happened. That's, you, you're, you're falling into heresy when you say those types of things. So you have people who have convinced themselves that their spiritual standing with God is fine, even if there's no attempt at all to take seriously the commands of God. That is thin ice to be walking on. How else do we see it? We see it in our culture in the redefining of sin. We see it in the watering down of sin. And so John's dealing with this heresy, and he's, he's, he's dealing with something that people can read and get a little bit discouraged on, especially verses 6 and 9. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Golly, that's a tough one, right? No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Or look at verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. What is he saying there? All right, what is he saying there? Well, he has already said this. In 1 John chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's already said, if you say you're not sinning, you're a liar. And now he's saying you're supposed to stop. So how do, how, what goes on here? And, and, and how do we apply this? How, how, does this? how does this happen with us? Well, here we go. I've said this plenty of times. Grammar is really important. All right? Grammar is important. Way back when, when you have, have to diagram sentences so you knew what the subject was and you knew what the verb was, you knew what the object was, you knew what adjectives are, you know, that's important because it's essential to interpreting Scripture at times. So here we go. Verb tenses are key. And the translators have worked to try to give you an idea of these verb tenses. Look at verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on. No one who continues to sin. Now, they're trying to express something there. And they're trying to express this present active indicative, this idea in the Greek that there is something that is ongoing, that is continual. It, is, it, is, it signifies continuous action that is progressive. And what do I mean by that? It means continuous action that is growing. He says, you get saved. What is he saying? Then sinning is not supposed to be continuous and growing in your life. That's what he's saying there. He's not saying you stop sinning. He's talking about something that is continuous and progressive. It's growing. Your lifestyle should not be one that embraces sin. All right? Now, I know... We struggle with sin. We struggle sometimes with habits that dishonor God. We need to be running to him. Because in verse 6, when he says, no one who lives in him, he's actually using that word abide, that word of trying to make that my home, the place I run to, abiding in him, running to him. 
Now, he's saying the running to him should be growing. The running to sin should be slowing, dropping off. I don't know why I had to rhyme it there for a second. All right? So, so he's saying, I want you to be continually running to him, continually living in him, continually seeking in him. That should be something that should grow over the course of a lifetime. And that as you struggle with sin, it shouldn't be that more as you, life goes on, it gets worse and worse, and, and, and things. It should, it should be going in the other direction. And our problem is we want to see progress in dealing with our life immediately. But this is a process that happens in our life. And we need to fight that temptation to minimize sin and rationalize it away like they were doing. You should not be the same person in five or ten years that you are now. You should be growing. It should be different. So the question is, are you? Are you moving? Now, we know it takes the power of God to affect real change in our life. And that's what he was talking about in verses 1 through 3. He says, this is where the power is. Focusing on his love for you. Focusing on his purpose, his destiny, his plan for you. Then the purification happens. That's where the growing happens. And so now he's saying, I want to apply it to your lives. He says, he says in verse 7 and 8, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does that... Well, is it saying? No, it's not there yet. There it is. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God was, appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And his fear is they're being led astray, led into disaster. And so he's showing them. He's showing them this teaching that they're struggling with, how false it is. And he's showing something else. And John is getting very in their face right now. He says, it's satanic. This is not a mistake. This is just not somebody slipped up and came up with... He says, there is something behind this. Scripture tells us there's an evil out there that is consumed with hatred, and it is real, and it is sentient. It is a being. And John wrote earlier in his gospel that Satan is the father, his, his, the gospel of John, that Satan is the father of lies, and he was a murderer from the beginning. And now he's saying it's sinning from the beginning because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And he's saying that these people, these teachers, they're leading them astray into destruction. This is why, you know, what I said at the very beginning, this is why I take it so seriously. Because this can lead mistakes, heresies, things that you think might be right, but you're not 100%. They can lead people into destruction. They can lead people into terrible situations in their life. And these leaders, are te they're teaching lies. And John is saying, these lies are of the devil. You're becoming like him. And this is strong language, but remember what he starts it off with. Dear children. He says, dear beloved ones. My beloved ones. John looks at these people as children whom he loves deeply, and he is responding appropriately to the seriousness of the situation. And in verse 9, he continues this thought. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, or no one who is born of God will have this habit of sin that he is progressing and growing. That's what he's saying there. Because God's seed remains in them, they cannot go on progressively growing and sinning worse because they have been born of God. If you're born of God, your, your direction of life has changed. Spiritual things become more and more important. 
But there's a real word of hope here. Notice he uses the word seed. I love this that John did this. He uses the word seed. In First and Second Peter, Peter tells us that we, are, we have this imperishable seed. We have the Holy Spirit in us. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, a seed is planted. Now, remember a seed. You don't plant it and then plant it in a little pot, put some water on it, stick it outside in the sunlight, about three hours later, that's about time. Where's my tree? Right? It takes time. It's a process. And this is something he's telling us that's very important because we can get discouraged when we struggle and when we sin. And he's saying it takes time. It's a process. God is in this process of changing you. And it takes time. It takes patience. And that is very comforting. So when you're struggling, when things have gone badly, maybe you've sinned or you're struggling with the guilt and the shame of what you've done, John, in the book of 1 John, is saying, confess it, now it's paid for. Now get back to abiding in him, run to him. Now remember, this is a process, and it takes time. In that passage in Romans 7, I read you just a little of Paul, he's saying, this is horrible, this is hard, and he finally he says, who will free me from this incredible, terrible situation that I'm in? And then he pins this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through, the, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's saying, who will free me from? Jesus did it. He freed me from this relentless cycle. And now he has started this process of growing this seed within me. Let me tell you something. When you're in crisis, that's not the time to begin to decide whether or not you're a Christian. If you're in the midst of sin or a huge failure, that's not the time to try to figure out, am I really a Christian? When you're depressed over something, that's not the time. You have to understand it's a process, and we have those difficult times. We have those brutal, brutal times where life is hell, and we hate even living. Because we're human, we fail. But over time... God's Spirit will change you. He will change you. It's the power of a seed. I have a son and a daughter-in-law who live in New Orleans. New Orleans is a very interesting city. Um, one of the things you see is that New Orleans spends a huge amount of their budget on simply keeping water out of the streets, right? They're below sea level, so they spend billions just getting the water out of the city, right? So when you think about this on, on a, the budget of a city, think about this, the budget of Newport News. We struggle with a lot of things in our budget, but one of the things we don't struggle with is pumping water out of the city. It just goes mostly. So we don't spend billions on it. We can spend billions on other things. New Orleans has no choice. So consequently, the worst roads in the United States are in New Orleans. In neighborhoods, they mark potholes for people so you don't lose your car. Big potholes that don't get fixed for years. Sidewalks are like climbing mountains and hills. Why? Here's a picture. That is not uncommon. That is all over the place in the city of New Orleans. Now, can you, remember, can you think about how this came about? Years ago, maybe 50 years ago, they're building this neighborhood, and they're planting little saplings. And they're like, oh, this is going to be so nice. They'll grow big, and it'll be shade. It'll be wonderful. Nobody thought, man, 
It's like huffing up a mound to get over some of these hills. Why? Where did that start? With a seed. With a seed. And that seed has the power to crack concrete. That seed, and what they struggle with now is, those roots now go under houses. If you've ever walked in a house where the living room is four or five inches higher in the middle than it is at the door, that's what you've run into. How did that start? With a seed. Simply with a seed. This is the power of change that God can bring in a person's life. He says, this seed has been planted within you and it has the power to shatter the concrete that is in your life. It has the power to upend and break things that may, may be things that you are struggling with. That power is there and it is within you. And you know what? I mean, trees continue to grow. You know, trees, I was reading this thing, trees grow in the winter even though it doesn't look like it. I mean, there's no fruit, there's no blossoms, there's no leaves, but they're still making rings. And so when you think of a seed, I mean, what's in a poppy seed, right? A poppy, not, <laughs> why did I say poppy? Yeah, cocaine. What's in a pot, a po- what's, what's in a sunflower seed? A sunflower is in a sunflower seed. Oh, gosh, I just lost a very important point, right? What's in an apple seed, okay? An apple tree and ultimately another multiple apples. What's in an acorn? An oak tree. A seed, just a seed. It starts small, but it has tremendous power. What power? What power? Paul tells us what power. He says this is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Paul says in Philippians, I want to know him, and I want to know the power of the resurrection, because that power now, we're told, is in us. I want to know him more, Paul says, this process. So John says you just can't, you know, just... You just can't give up and accept the habits of sin that are just growing where you need. You fight it. You understand. You, you go back to verses 1 through 3, and you begin to use that focus on his love for me, his plan for me, and the purging of sin. All right. Last point. Yay. The mark of the Christian, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. If you're continually doing wrong, that's a bad sign. What is the right thing they do not do? It is love. Love your brother and sister. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is a constant theme throughout the Bible. It's a constant theme with John, and here he uses that word agape, the highest form of love, a love that sacrifices, a love that delights in other people's success, a love that seeks the good of others. It is self-sacrificing. It is an act of the will. You want to read more? Just go to 1 Corinthians 13, right? We, all, we know that love chapter, but that's what he's talking about. He's describing what agape is. And to act in love is to do righteousness. They are linked. At a church I went to years and years ago, there was an older gentleman and it doesn't just happen to old, it just happened. That, that's what, and he was incredibly crabby and kind of mean-spirited. And I can remember thinking, what's the deal? What's the deal with this guy? But he came every time the doors were open. He gave money. 
He served on committees. He didn't smoke or drink or chew or go out with girls who do. He checked all the boxes, right? He checked all the boxes. And no one in that church seemed outraged that his life denied the power of God that he said he believed in. No one said, hold on, you're mean. You're a mean man. You're mean to people. You're mean to people you know. You're mean to people you don't know. And you say you love God? That's the opposite of what God wants you to do. And no one said, we need, you know, somebody gets caught in this or somebody gets caught in this and we need to have a little church meeting here. We need to talk about this. We need to decide what we're going to do about this. This is terrible. No one said, this guy says he loves God, but he hates people. That's wrong. We need to have a meeting. We need to confront him with his sin, right? No one thought of that. No one worried about how a person who was so unpleasant could say they loved Jesus Christ, who was the most winsome, pleasant, loving person who ever walked this earth. It was not a scandal. We find a lot of things to be scandals about, but that's one thing that is a scandal because it denies the power of God. No one worried this was an insult to the character of God. And it is. Because love and righteousness, you know, they're linked. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. They're linked. Otherwise, it's just show. It's not real. And so for us, what is John's challenge here? John's challenge is this. What is going on in your life? Is it moving? Is it just moving in the right direction? Not are you sinless. He's already established the fact that you are not sinless, and that is a lie if you think you are. He says, I'm not asking you if you're not sinless. What I'm saying is, are you progressing? Does it bother you if you're not progressing? Because this is important. This is life and death. Because, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And as we think on that, focus on that, it changes us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Even when it can be difficult to interpret, we see the truth that comes shining through. And we see that that truth is based on your great love for us. And John shows it in his love for these people and his love for us as he penned this letter that we are dear ones to him because he is concerned about our lives and our standing with you. So Father, help us to be progressing. We pray that your spirit would have free reign in our life to push us even when we don't want to go in a certain way to push us where we need to go to help us to grow, to become more like Jesus. So that as we meet people, people we know and people we don't know, Lord, that we would be to them like Jesus and love them like he would, like he does. Because it's in his name we pray. Amen.